I'm Tom from the Ballpark Bros. Here's Mike. This next presentation on the Four-Eyed Radio Network is brought to you by Revenge Lover. Stand out from the crowd. For more information, visit revengelover.com and mention the podcast for 10% off on your order. Hello, this is Steve. And this is Eric. And you're listening to the Crichton Cast. I'm declaring a state of emergency. All personnel restricted to base. Everything seen and heard in that room is top secret. Yes, sir. He didn't tell you what's inside the sphere, did he? You didn't tell him, did you? You didn't tell him what's inside the sphere. And how would you know that, Beth? I am not a warrior. Very soon, you will be. We're going to the jungle. Amy wants green drop drink. No. Amy wants green drop drink. All right, all right. Where they were married. God creates dinosaurs. God destroys dinosaurs. God creates man. Man destroys God. Man creates dinosaurs. Dinosaurs eat man. Woman inherits the earth. Konnichiwa, Eric. Crichton-Castle, Yokoso. Arigato, Stevenson. And welcome to another episode of the Crichton-Cast. If my Japanese was somewhat correct, that's pretty much what I said. I mean, you caught the hello, Eric, people, and <laughs> then it was, you know, welcome to the Crichton-Cast. But uh, um, I was telling Eric before we started recording this, 20-something years ago, I lived in Okinawa, Japan. My father was in the military, and unfortunately, I was, uh, you know, 12, 13 years old and had no one to learn the language and kind of regret the fact I didn't because it would have been great to learn it while I was surrounded by it. Um, but that kind of made this novel really fun for me. <laughs> and the uh, entirety of my Japanese knowledge comes from 80s pop music. So <laughs> <laughs> There we go. <laughs> I like I, I uh, wow that might be another conversation we'll have to have because uh, of eighties pop music that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we are here to talk about Rising Sun and an interesting thing I did not realize that this movie was released a month after Jurassic Park. Yeah, it was um, very very and, shortly after. Like it must have been <clears throat> pretty much in production uh, around the same time. Um, Granted, I'm sure production on this one took less time than production on Jurassic Park with all the the effects and everything. But right, no, and that's what I, I unfortunately couldn't find anything on just exactly when filming started for this because that was my my thought also was you know they were part way into Jurassic Park before they started filming this and so was it because I think it was 20th Century Fox that did Rising Sun did they think oh man you know they took this number one bestseller of Jurassic Park and are making it into a movie. We should take this next one, which was Rising Sun, and make it into a movie and try and make some money off of it too um, type of thing. But anyways, so this came out. I mean, this guy had back-to-back uh, movies. And this one also won some awards and did well. It had like a $35 million budget and ended up doing $63 million uh, locally in the U.S. So it broke $100 million, I think, internationally. But, um, you know, uh, back then in 1993, $15 million was a decent opening weekend. And probably that was partly because everybody saw Jurassic Park and it was great. So they thought, oh, okay, Rising Sun, let's check this out. So <laughs> we'll, we'll give this a shot. Um, <clears throat> uh, Jurassic Park, this movie is not. No, uh, we'll just, no. We'll just put it that way. Yeah. Um, I don't know in what order you want to do this. Do we want to talk about the 
My my notepad, which I normally keep to to discuss the specific differences between the the book and the movie, um, I didn't really have a whole ton of notes because okay. um, in many ways the movie is very very close to the novel, but. In other ways, I mean, there's some very specific changes that I think we'll hold off on getting to till near the end, mm-hmm. but that where they, they made some drastic changes. And, of course, there's some character changes uh, for the casting and whatnot. But for the most right. part, the story fairly tracks. Um, there's no gigantic deviations from the book into the movie, um, except for uh, they, they took a, a good book and made it bad. No, so, there you go. And, and there's and as we get into it, there's three deviations that bothered me, and one of them I need to talk to you about to see if, what I missed. But okay. um, this and this was one of the novels that uh, Michael Crichton w- worked on the screenplay for this. Now, supposedly he left partway through, and then he was Philip Kaufman who did the movie. He actually uh, finished writing it, and my understanding is he Michael Crichton. Because it was because he doesn't agree with the fact that it was Wesley Snipes, that it was an African-American, a black guy, that was this uh, lead role as this cop, hmm. is what it was. And that was one of the things that actually did bother me, because um, because they made him, and not because they made him African-American, but because now all of a sudden they threw in this other stuff that had to do with the, the mean streets of L.A. Yeah. and, you know, that chase scene and everything in the movie that I'm like... Yeah. That's really taken away from what this whole story was, because I you read the book or listen to the audiobook, and this is the uh, you know the 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 kohai the relationship, and uh, you can really tell that um, Wesley Snipes' character, um, who is not Petey Son, but I always call him Petey Son because that's what he was in the novel. He was <laughs> yeah. he's he's Wes. He's not Peter he's not he's Peter Smith. Peter, yeah, he's yeah, Peter Smith. They so, changed him to Web uh, Webster Smith uh, yeah. in the movie. Um, right. Yeah, I had I I had no problem with Wesley Snipes playing this part if mm-hmm. that part is what they had him play but they didn't they had him play a wesley snipes version of the peter smith character and that's what bothered me it's like they tried to they said okay here's the character but we want you to go ahead and uh, snipes it up a bit that right. was unnecessary and that's where it got unnecessary and that's exactly right and that's that's what it bothered me about it because now this also, I'll tell you what bothered me in the book. <laughs> There's a lot of we're really starting this off, telling everybody not to do anything here. Um, I mean, uh, Peter in the book, his character, the um, Lieutenant Smith's character, really is kind of a dummy. Like he doesn't know anything that's going on around him. Now, granted, he's new to this job as the uh, liaison with the Asian community and everything like that. But uh, what this really comes across is that Tom, uh, uh, not Tom Graham, the um, uh, John Connor, mm-hmm. uh, which you know Sean Connery's character is. I mean, he just he knows all this stuff, and he is the sensei for sure throughout this whole thing. But I kind of feel bad. I was like, man, they're really making out um, Peter Smith to be a dummy when it comes to not noticing anything. Like I'm even reading the book, and I'm like, dude, it's right there. Like, why are you not seeing this? <laughs> there were a couple of moments when I was like, okay, he was supposed to. Like, I understand that right now he's playing the. You know, he's doing this this liaison role. But prior to that, he was a press officer, which requires you to be, you know, quick thinking, uh, you know, be able to, to, to think on your feet and be able to, you know, pick things up quickly so that you can diffuse situations. But before that, he was a homicide investigator. He was a detective. So the fact that he missed, there, there were certain things, like there were certain things that I'm like, okay, you're, he's showing off um, that the Connors character is very, very observant, you know, almost uh, Sherlock Holmesian in certain ways about noticing particular things. 
mm-hmm. then there's other things that are just glaring. Like you said, even as reading it, you pick it up immediately and you think, how is this person who supposedly spent any time as a detective not catching that? I think the, the biggest example for me of that was the glasses. When yeah. he's asking about the glasses and he's got no clue. Why are you asking about glasses? Who cares about glasses? Blah, blah. I'm like, it's a valid question. And, like, they they made a point to mention the glasses in this scene. And now he's asking about the glasses. Like, why don't you think about it for a second and realize, you know, it's like that. The, you know, maybe I read too many mysteries that I pick up on things like that. But you'd think a homicide detective, even a former homicide detective, would have caught some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think there were times when the uh, the prowess of Connor was, I think, overstated simply by making uh, Peter's character dumber than he needed to be. Right. But I think it was I, limited. In There were only a couple of times when I really felt that way. Other times I just thought it was, you know, Connor showing off more than anything. Right, yeah, and that was it. And I like the fact um, that apparently Michael Crichton wrote this with Sean Connery in mind, which makes sense why the character's name is John Connor and Sean Connery, and I just like, oh, okay, now I kind of see that, because before I'm thinking Terminator when I read John <laughs> Connor. But um, but I like it because, so, this is this and The Great Train Robbery have been my two favorite audiobooks so far. I really loved, and I'm sorry I don't have the author's name in front of me, or not the author, the reader's name in front of me for the audiobook, but he did a great job of doing characters in this. Um, you know, the Japanese characters and the <clears throat> female characters. I was really bothered every time it was the kid, though. Yes. That the was kid. the one that threw me off. Like, any time he tried to do the daughter. Um, yes. Oh, <laughs> my gosh. <laughs> no, just, just, just read the lines, dude. Don't. Don't voice. don't try and be a, a female kid's <laughs> voice. It was that was bad, and yeah, and it, that threw me every time. The rest of it, man, it was great when he goes into this Japanese accent. We talking about a Japanese character, and his speaking in Japanese was really really good. And but every time he talked to uh, Michelle Shelley, the girl, yes. uh, the daughter, uh, yeah, that lost me. It was just annoying. And, and there's another thing. I like the name Zelda. But there's one of those things, you know, why Why do we feel like we have to change names in movies? Because the daughter is named Zelda, or Zelly for short, where in the book it was Michelle and Shelly for short. So. Yeah. And again, I, I think it was simply because they changed the race, which I don't understand mm. why you feel you need to change the character name when it's not like Peter or Michelle is specifically... <laughs> You know, yeah, a white th- name those or names like are, that, are, yeah. are pretty common names across the board. They're not anything that, you know, they don't, it didn't need to be changed. It was one of those little things that y- you can see why they did it, sort of, but at the same mm-hmm. time. Um, the, the narrator on the, the Rising Sun audiobook that we we're talking about is McLeod Andrews. Okay. Um, that's that's who, who read this one. And like like you said, he did a fantastic job throughout almost the entirety of the book. The only time is when Shelley's speaking. It's like, oh, God, no. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, and uh, and like I said, this I actually re-listened to the beginning and the end of this audiobook. I just I enjoyed it that much, him doing it. So I 
this is a quick read book too, especially coming off of just doing talking about Jurassic Park and the Lost World. This was a good quick read book, so I definitely would suggest reading it um, for oh, sure. Absolutely. The audiobook. Hey, this was what eleven, twelve hours. The audiobook. Yeah, just over eleven hours, I think, on the audiobook, and I feel you can get through it much quicker uh, just reading it as well because it's not sure. it's not dense. It doesn't have a whole bunch of uh, dense science in the middle. Uh, you know, you get a tiny little bit of um, instead of instead of science, instead of computers being the bad guys in this in, in this sense, the the bad guys that you know Creighton always has to have some you know besides the main characters in the story who have their own little drama, there's always some big external threat. Um, you know, in some of the previous books, it's been this genetic engineering thing going on or the computers taking over the world type of situation. In this one, it's <clears throat> all about Japan trying to take over the American economy. Right. It's and economics. So, yeah. Yeah. So there are a few uh, expository sections where uh, especially Connor is just is, is kind of going into a bit of a diatribe about how Japan is taking over the U.S. And there's a couple of moments when it gets to be a little bit like, okay, I get it, dude. But mm-hmm. for the most part, it's much shorter and quicker to get through than some of the heavier science bits of some of his previous novels. Right. And and it was something that was very true. I mean, so when I lived in Japan, it was uh, 93, 94, 95. It was mm-hmm. those years. So it was during these years. And uh, there was definitely like the, the technology. And I lived in Okinawa, the island south of Japan. So um, the technology was just totally different than what you had in the U.S. And um, so I get where the technology thing. But then shortly after this, too, is really when the Chinese economy started to have its big boom. And all of a sudden, we're importing everything from China. So everything he's writing about is stuff that was happening or did happen. In fact, um, he, he's, he spoke that in the early 90s, he ate lunch almost every single day at a Japanese restaurant in Santa Monica. And shortly after Rising Sun came out, the uh, owner of the restaurant told him that people were telling him not to have anything to do with him. So uh, Michael Crichton gave him a copy of the book. And a few days later, the proprietor said um, that he could understand why he was under attack because those practices he didn't say anything about the book being inaccurate in this depiction but he understood now why people were saying what they were saying about him and so and i totally could see that yeah which is neat because um but yeah i mean that's what a different culture that is in japan so a a lot of the stuff they're talking about and they did a pretty decent job of it in the movies like showing some of it was um was uniquely japanese yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a, a lot of truth behind what he was saying, even though it didn't continue necessarily in the same trend that it was it was trending towards at that time. But at the time that the book was written, and even at the time that the film was released, this was a, a valid concern, and uh, you know, so all of that part was was accurate. And then you know, surrounding that, of course, we have the the mystery, and that's what one of the things I love about this book is that you do have basically you've got a true uh, murder mystery going on here. So we actually have, for one of the first times in these in these Crichton novels that we've read, a definitive uh, bad guy, not just a, a bad entity uh, or or something that's or, or or dinosaurs that are coming after you. You have uh, a bad guy. You've got a who done it, and that's right. uh, the whole point of the the, the storyline is to get to who done it, who killed this girl. You know, you start out with this. You you have a dead woman. And she's been murdered, and we've got to find out who did it. And that's fantastic. It's it's a great little uh, uh, change from what we're used to in the Crichton novels, uh, while still being 
very uniquely Crichton in its writing. Yes, yeah. And this is actually the last um, the last novel that Michael Crichton has a screenwriting credit for. Um, after this, the only thing he did screenwriting for was Twister, and then he actually produced stuff going on afterwards, which will be interesting once we talk about things like Disclosure and Twister, or Disclosure and Sphere and the 13th Warrior, and on those episodes we'll talk about why he produced it versus screenwriting, but this is his last time he did screenwriting on his own uh, novel. Yeah, and... Uh you can kind of understand why he might have stepped away <laughs> after this. He's like, you know what, you guys aren't gonna, you guys aren't gonna get it right anyway. So I'm just gonna, you know what, I'll sell you the rights, I'll produce, I'll get my back end, and uh, we'll call it good. Um, but let's talk about the casting in this movie. I mean, besides, we talked about Wesley Snipes. Obviously, would have been a fine casting choice because this this was Wesley Snipes in his prime. Yeah, you know, this was you know before all the tax drama and <laughs> everything before he else. Owed, before, yeah, he was in need to pay his taxes. Yes, um, <laughs> you know, and he was a fine actor, not a problem. Like I said, the only the, the choice to make the to change the character to fit the actor was was incorrect. The choice of actor for the part would have been fine if they had kept the the part the, the character. Same. Yes, um, yeah. the other casting in this film, some of it was absolutely brilliant. Which is what makes it so much harder to see how bad the movie ended up being. Because you have Sean Connery, who is, yes. was fantastic and a perfect choice for that role. And especially if, as you say, uh, Crichton wrote the character with him in mind, it makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. And and he does a fantastic job with what he's given. But, you know, unfortunately it just doesn't work out as well as it does in the book. But fantastic, fantastic uh, casting, I think. Harvey Keitel. As the American <laughs> Dick detective, <laughs> perfect uh, casting yeah. for that part. Perfect he was casting so for good. Graham. That Tom Graham character was one of my favorite characters in the book and in the movie. Um, because they even talk about. I don't know if you noticed, but in the movie when they're driving, uh, you know, Connery is telling Snipes, you know, hey, this is how you have to do. You know, they don't like big arm movements, stuff like that. And the next scene when they're walking in, Harvey Keitel's just swinging his arms. Yeah, yeah Connery and Snipes exactly. are, and he's just big arm movements. Just he was. The, he was the character in the book. Um, it was so good. Yeah, so I'm glad you said that. I, yeah, I really loved yeah. Harvey Keitel. He he was really, I mean, he almost outdid Sean Connery as far as, like, nailing the character there, yeah. yeah. And then the other uh, perfect casting piece in this film was the character of Willie the Weasel Wilhelm. Oh, uh, if God. you have a character named the Weasel, who do you think should play that part? <laughs> Just Dude, immediately. I... When it was Steve Buscemi that came out, I was like, oh, shit, this is perfect. <laughs> it really is. I mean, that's the only thing you can think of. You have a character named the Weasel. The first oh. thing that pops in your mind is Steve Buscemi. And I'm sure, he, I mean, I hear he's a great guy, but he has that look of being that weaselly little character. And he plays I, it to perfection, even though does. the part is much more downplayed in the movie than it is in the book, I think. But uh, yep. he does a fantastic job with it. And again, the, the the movie was in as a whole not good. But there's this great scene when the, um, the one cop's on the phone, and Willie the Weasel, Steve Buscemi, is just in the background behind, and he's just like looking at him through the window at one point, and just putzing around weasley. with a fax machine, and just just picking at everything. And it, it, like the Weasel was perfect for him. Yeah, so that was a great casting right there. <laughs> and then there was uh, some questionable casting. Um, yes, I wondered about. Tia Carrera's part. Why was Tia Carrera in this movie? Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I you know, don't understand that at all. Um, I mean, she's gorgeous. Don't get me wrong at all. But I had to look and see because um, I was trying to figure out, like, 
because I know her from like more recent years and everything like mm-hmm. that. Um, but this was one of, I mean, she did a lot in the late 80s and 90s, and I just didn't realize that. But I don't know why she was, I don't know. I, I wonder why they said, okay, we need somebody, okay, the character is half Japanese, half black. So let's get a Hawaiian. Let's get a Hawaiian. What? Let's get, <laughs> yes. What? I mean, I get that the part calls for, you know, the part calls for a beautiful woman. That's part of the the character itself is supposed to be this very, very attractive woman, uh, you know, mm-hmm. minus the, the, the deformity of her arm. She's got a, a deformity of her arm, which they completely downplayed in the movie. They barely show she, she's got basically her hand was a little messed up, whereas right. in the book it was said to be a stump on a stump at the end of a withered arm. Like it was a major blatant deformity <clears throat> on this otherwise you know very very beautiful person so that's why it's like oh okay you know he, he makes a fool of himself saying oh i'm surprised you're not a model before he sees the arm and things like that and then you get tia carrera with just uh, you know a single lumpy hand and you're like and they don't even no. touch on it like barely no. touch on it at all until suddenly out of nowhere it's this big huge deal so, i'm in japan i'm an outcast because of this and i'm like oh well you know you didn't really play that up very well (laughs) Mm -mm. no it was not played up well at all and this was one of the three that bothered me because at the end of the movie he's (laughs) dropping her off and all of a sudden uh, sean connor's character is who she met in japan and she's dating or not dating or whatever like all of a sudden they've always known each other the whole time yeah she's she's essentially living with him that's one of the main changes they made you know at the very beginning, I thought, oh, they're going to be really true to the book because they show he show he goes to pick up Connor and they show that, you know, he's living in a Japanese style apartment with his shoes off and his shoes are, are on a little shelf by the door. And next to his shoes are a pair of women's high heels. That's in the book. In the book, mm-hmm. we never find out to whom those heels belong. It's just, you know, it's, it's one of the mysteries of this character that he obviously had a woman at his house at some point you know, either the, she was there when he was there or had been there recently because you don't usually you take your shoes off when you come in but if you leave you put them back on <laughs> so the the assumption is that there was a woman in his apartment this entire time that he never mentions he never talks about her it's never brought up it's part of the mystery of his character and i liked that <laughs> Right. In the movie, they decide, let's take this character who, in the book, may or may not end up dating Peter. You know, it's left open. You know, there's there's an obvious attraction between them. They're, they're obviously hitting it off. And Connor's character is obviously encouraging it. He's like, hey, why don't you spend some time with her? Why don't you ask? You know, he's practically telling her, like, hey, ask her out. But in the movie, they make that character with him. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, What? And it completely it, unneeded at all. Yeah, and, and it makes it very... It turns what could be a a small, budding love interest, which, uh, as with most Crichton novels, we don't have a lot of... You know, it's not a major arc point for, for this love interest, but it's there. It's in the background. It's something that could be continuing on after. And in the film, they take it, they still kind of push that direction, and then twist at the end and make it be like, ha ah, she was just flirting with you, but she's actually with Connor this whole time. Ha ha. Yeah. It's like, what? No, and remind me, at the end of the novel, they don't allude to what he does with her or anything like that, right? No, yeah, it's just, it's left kind of open. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, there's no definitive, uh, you know, did they or didn't they? It's just a matter of, mm. 
it's left open. It's left, you know, they're in contact. You know, they could be in contact with each other. You know, the only thing that's definitive, he, you know, he leaves the liaison program. Um, he takes a leave of absence from the police force in general. Uh, but, yeah, it's never stated uh, 100% whether or not he continues to uh, to see this woman or not. Right. Well, and um, I do love... In the book, they do a great job of like explaining things in the last chapter because there's so much that goes on, and this is what got lost in the movie. You know, there are great details to just how much the uh, this Japanese corporation is like getting at both police officers. You know, even with his uh, wife and with the kid, and there's a little bit of that threat there, but it's just even more undermining. One of my favorite to read and listen to chapters in this book is when. Um, when Smith finds out that he has the tape and the Japanese are outside and he's trying to get mm-hmm. his daughter safe with the nanny and Smith and um, Smith's uh, Connor's coming. That is just a great tense build up scene. And it's really slow at the beginning because he's just getting home after a long night. And then all of a sudden it's this great action scene and he gets shot in the back. You know, um, I loved that scene and they didn't do it as well in the movie at all. But there was a lot in the movie that you just miss out on to as far as the deviousness of the Japanese, um, I don't want to say culture, but the uh, corporation. Yeah. Yeah. This this whole thing. um, What's really odd to me in in the movie, they make it seem they, they allude to further, you know, more people higher up having something to do with it. Whereas in the book, it's pretty much you know wrapped up within the 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 people that we know are involved, and it's pretty much okay. We're we're pretty sure that there was no authorization from above for this. This was something that you know an individual made a choice and and did this, and then from that point forward, he was just using his power within the company to to cover it up. There wasn't necessarily a. It was kind of one of those things where you don't you don't feel like the upper echelons really approved. They were going along mm-hmm. with it to protect their interests after the fact. Whereas in the movie, you get more of a feeling like this was all planned from the beginning, from the top, from, from the very top. Right. And I don't, that doesn't flow as well because it really feels like this was a, a an opportunity that arose at a moment's notice. And, uh, you know, in typical, you know, he, he makes a point that uh, these Japanese corporations, these these people aren't particularly good at improvising. They're very good at planning for many, many contingencies so that it seems like if anything comes up that they know what to do. But it's not because they're improvising what to do. It's because they've planned for those eventualities. And so when something happens that they didn't plan for, they're actually very bad at handling it because they they haven't practiced it. They don't know what to do. And so I think what we have here is a situation where something unplanned happened. One particular person makes a choice to do something, and then from that point forward, it's just a matter of trying to make the best of that uh, within the corporation as opposed to it having been a very planned thing from the very beginning. Yes. Yeah, and and that's just it. I mean, they're they're always a step ahead, but it was not perfectly planned out or anything. They're just trying to keep... They thought they were always a step ahead. <laughs> right. And then Tanaka got in the way, or whatever his name was. Uh, no, Eddie Sakamura. Yeah. Yes, Eddie, Eddie, Eddie was I the linchpin in this whole character. thing. Eddie was the yeah. linchpin. They yeah. they thought they were yeah. going to be able to to stick it all on him and and have that you know get away with it. And he's like, uh, uh-uh, I ain't having that. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, no, that was he was he was a good character. Um, he was a fun character in the book for sure. And uh, I, I liked that um, that Connor Michael uh, or Sean Connery's character that he you know 
that made him mad when when he died he was like you know this was the point where it was almost like getting revenge type of thing and that that did change sean connery's character a little bit in the book yeah. more so in the book than the movie i believe yeah yeah he was he was definitely unhappy about that situation um mm-hmm. i thought that was pretty good casting actually the the uh, actor who played eddie in the movie i think did a good job with what they yeah, were, he, what, what he was given yeah, I mean, he, he did a great job with that Playboy um, vibe and everything like that, for sure, yeah. Um, the other the other casting choice that I thought made sense that, that worked well, and uh, I think he did a good job with it, was Ray Weiss as uh, the senator. The senator? Yeah, mm-hmm. I thought that was a good choice, especially, uh, you know, you see him now. Uh, you, he, I mean, he's still working, he's still doing things, and you see him now, and he's completely different. <laughs> right. But, uh, you know... Him at that time, it, it was perfect for that kind of sleazy, uh, but you know, <laughs> on the outside looks, you know, clean and proper and family man politician guy. Like he was, a, he was, he played a good politician, um, right? And it, and that's exactly what we we're supposed to be dealing with was this career politician who you know had this stance he was trying to run on, and now he's in trouble, and he has to you know try to spin. This you know now he's doing something because he has to to protect himself, but he's trying to spin it to where it makes it seem like it's not really a change in his mind that it's just a a modification he says um, of his position. Yeah, no, and that's um, his character again. This was maybe maybe what bothered me a lot about the movie was that I felt it was so choppy. Um, you know, I listened to the audio book and then I watched the movie and then I read the book and. Because I listened to the audiobook, uh, you know, you're paying a lot more attention to details. A lot of times when I'm reading a book, you know, I might skim over a few of the details, get right to the dialogue and the action stuff. Um, and so I felt like the movie was really choppy because even the scene when he's, in this case, he's getting a fax of the picture or whatever of him and, you know, he shoots himself, which he commits suicide in the book too, but it just seemed so choppy and so thrown together, you know, even like um, his wife being in a wheelchair and all this other stuff that just like, they tried to, they tried to put all of these too many characters in from the book into the movie and add their own characters. And then none of the characters had long enough screen time for you to really care about any of them. Yeah. So none of the, none of these other part characters, I should say, you know, not the main ones, but all these other side characters, you just did not get um, to be as close to them as you did in the book. Yeah. Well, they had to cut those times so that they could fit in a random car chase through the ghetto of Los Angeles. Yes. That wasn't mm-hmm. in the book at all no. to try to give, so I guess to try to even things out, they they did a couple of things. They made a couple of choices to try to even out the characters between Smith and Connor, which did not exist in the book. In the book, Connor was always ahead of Smith, you know, sometimes annoyingly so, but not so much that they needed to change it around so much. There were two points specifically in the movie that I felt that they were trying to bring Connor down to Smith's level instead mm-hmm. of, you know, I, I know their their intention was probably to to raise Smith up to Connor's level, but it didn't come off that way. It came off the other way around for me. Uh, one was that car chase when he goes through and uses his connections in the African-American community to get away from these uh, Japanese people uh, chasing right. them down in the car. A completely unnecessary scene, completely came off as uh, stereotypical and just, like, I, I mean... <laughs> I was, I was irritated going, by that oh. because yeah, there was that was stereotypical like gang type whatever scene. Yeah, it was it was irritating. Yeah, 
And then the other scene was when Connor's character is given the gift of the golf membership. In the book, he very clearly knows exactly what it is. He's he's looking at this and he's going, "This is worth a hell of a lot of money. They want me to drop this a lot." Mm-hmm. And like he he knows that it's been given to him as a, a attempted bribe for him to right. drop the case, leave it alone, and not find out what the actual you know secret behind everything is. Where in the in the movie, they make him seem like he thinks it's just a gift. Smith has to point out to him, what do you think that is? Oh, it's just a golf membership. Da, da, da. It means nothing. What are you talking You know, it's a, he, like he had to point it out. And you have this moment of revelation on Connor's face when he realizes, oh, my God, they're trying to bribe me. I'm like, what? No, he would have no. known. Exactly. And in the book, he it did totally, know. totally killed Connor's character. Um, <clears throat> it was so strong in the book by doing that um, because I think it was even Snipes' character that actually said how much it was worth or whatever. And, uh, and that was just not the case at all. And you're right. It, they were trying to bring up Petey San, Snipes' character, and really all they were doing was bringing down Connery, John, uh, you know, John Connor's character is what they were doing in the end. And so it, it, it took away some from how great that character was in the book. Yeah, it, it was really unnecessary, I felt. And it, it, didn't, it didn't add anything to Smith's character. It really didn't. Um, there was one other scene thrown in, I think specifically for Wesley Snipes' benefit, the, a, a random fight scene that wasn't in the <laughs> in the book which, just to which show one? off uh, it, uh, on <clears throat> on the building near the end oh yes at the end at the top yeah when the yeah, um, when well, all of a sudden, yeah you know because we know wesley snipes is a martial artist you know he's mm-hmm. and so to have a movie with wesley snipes where he doesn't fight somebody i guess you just i guess maybe it's maybe it's in his contract maybe he's, he's got to have a fight scene i don't know <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but it was it was added it was not in the book and it was completely unnecessary it was fun to see sean connery kick some button you know you haven't you really haven't seen you don't uh, get that very often yeah i yes, haven't yeah. seen connery fight like that since his bond days but uh you know it was it was a scene that was i'm like this fight didn't happen <laughs> this fight didn't happen at all in the book and of course it happened because they were chasing the killer. Here it is. The killer. <laughs> the third biggest, no explanation, why did you do this, bothersome. And I'm glad you agree with me on this one, Eric. You have, you can make a lot of changes between books and movies. But when you're dealing with a whodunit, which at its core, yes, there's a lot of political and economical uh, you know, factors and themes in the book as well. But when it comes down to it, it is a whodunit. Right. So when you're converting that into a movie, there's one thing you should not change, and that is who does it. Who does it? <laughs> the who done it part should not change. <laughs> the murderer and was changed. What? For what would, with no explained reason as to why, and like literally, if you weren't paying that much attention, you're just like, oh, why is the white guy running away? Yeah. Like he just. I just I didn't get it, and that's why you have was... a fight scene because you have this character instead of the Japanese character who was very stoic and just said, you know, what? I'm gonna I'm gonna go outside for a moment and goes out on the balcony and jumps off. Right. <laughs> instead, yes. you have this American character who, of course, is still trying to get away with it, hasn't realized the jig is up, and so he's running away trying to get away. And they're chasing after him, and of course, he's got bodyguards. So they have to fight these bodyguards randomly, and then. Then he falls into the cement. I don't think he jumps on purpose. Whereas in the in the book, he very clearly commits suicide. 
Yeah, yeah, it was a, an honor suicide type of thing, you know. He was shameful. He knew everything. He'd been caught and stuff, and so it, that was it was very clear and you know a cultural thing type of thing. So uh, that made total sense. But yeah, it, <sighs> for some reason they made a completely different character. Who was a character in the book, but more of a side. He wasn't really as involved. Um, he was he was the assistant of the of the senator. And he's just this guy who's basically there to try to clean up the, the senator's messes. And so I can understand somewhat on that front. But, uh, you know, in the in the movie, they make it much more tied in to this actual deal uh, for mm-hmm. this company that they're trying to buy. Um, and it's yeah. just – it was convoluted and it was unnecessary. <laughs> and it was one of those big things. I, I was watching it and I was like, did they just – wait, did they? For real? <laughs> Why? Because I didn't remember that. I, you know, I've seen this movie uh, many, many years ago before before doing this. But then rewatching and rereading, that's when I really, you know, it clicked that this this is wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because uh, you know they did make him out like he had more to do with what was going on in that boardroom than they ever did in the book. And you know, I mean, if you want to try and connect some dots, I mean, maybe. He knew what the senator was doing on the 46th floor, and so he went up there, and she was coming back alive. And so I, I don't know why you would think you still had to kill her. Because I mean, maybe because he thought something. I don't know. I just it just it took well, in everything. The movie they then make then this why character... did the Japanese? Yeah, why did the Japanese care at all about any of this? Then I just I don't get it. Yeah, in in in, in the movie they make this character of Bob Richmond uh, somehow involved in the actual negotiations to to buy this company. And that's the other thing they did, which I thought was... I feel like they... I don't know if they thought that it wasn't explained well enough in the book. I thought that it was, but it was kind of an afterthought. It was almost an afterthought in the book. You did kind of wonder still, because they didn't get around to it until the very end to tell you, oh yeah, here, by the way, this is why those cameras were up there. Because they make a point to state that these cameras aren't always up there on this 46th floor. And they were mm-hmm. moved there that day. So it's almost as if they were expecting something to happen. Well, in the book, they, they say, no, it, they did move those cameras up there because they were watching the office workers that were up on that floor during the day. Um, but then in the movie, they make it out to they specifically put those cameras there so that they could spy on the other parties in, the, in these negotiations so that they could zoom in and listen to what they were saying or read their lips and listen to what they're saying. Um, another point that they had audio in the video in the movie, whereas in the book it was made explicit that they had no audio because of the way that these cameras were, which, you know, it makes a certain amount of sense. They did update some of the technology because it was several years between when the book was written and when the movie came out. So they did update some of the technology. Like right. you know, we were dealing with a single disc <clears throat> that had this recording on it as opposed to a series of 20 tapes that were in the book and that makes sense and it does make things a little like i'm glad they that made sense that was a change that made sense to pare it down from okay instead of us dealing with this box of 20 tapes and we just have to have this one tape out of there like no we've got the technology now where they would have put all this information on a single disc and being well, yeah because that, that was down. the forefront the newest technology because i mean the the book was still you know yeah he was doing the writing on it in the 80s i think it was released in 91 or 92 but yeah the new technology was you know Laserdisc and DVDs were, uh, you know, about to be the big thing and stuff like that. So, yeah, so that made sense, and it, and it it was that was a change from the book to the movie that made sense because it didn't affect the storyline. You still had this 
disc. You still had this recording. They still had to take it to a special laboratory to try and analyze it. And, <clears throat> and I felt that, you know, obviously when you make a movie, I, you, the book took 11 hours to read. Obviously you can't make all of that into a single movie or you'd have an 11-hour movie. So right. <laughs> I understand when they make some changes, you know, like the, the whole dealing with the, the recording. I felt they actually handled that well in the movie because in the book he has to go to like three different places with this tape to try to find out uh, what's going on. And, and in the book it's to make a copy. He wants to make a copy, so he takes it to this one place. They say, oh, I can't make a copy for you because uh, this is special format. If I make a copy it won't be legal because you know there's no way I can guarantee it's an accurate copy. So then he takes it to another place who says, uh, we can't help you, you know, basically putting up the, the stone wall, saying, sorry, we can't help you. Um, and that's where he finds out that maybe these tapes have been doctored because they mentioned that we can't help you because all of our people have gone home because they were here all night working on some special project. And that's a moment in the book where it's done very well to finally give Smith's character a little bit of like, okay, now we're seeing why he used to be a detective because he's the one that thinks to, well, maybe I'll just, uh, you know, maybe I'll just cast that line out there and see what see what fish I catch, and ask him, oh, I'm sure Nakamoto is very happy with your work, and mm-hmm. you know, to confirm that, yeah, it was those tapes that they were working on, even though that's something that if he had asked directly, they wouldn't have told him, and they switched that around in the movie, which um, you know is fine. They basically condensed that whole scene in the movie just to make it a little bit more compact, but still get to the same point where they, they discover that somebody's been working on these video files overnight before the disc was was given to them. And then they have to find Tia Carrera's character <laughs> to to analyze the video. And that's that's when they figure out that, oh well yeah, you know, you said this is original, it's not an original, it's a copy, here's why, and blah blah blah. And that's when they start to figure out, you know, that there's something something going on with this tape and that there must be an original still somewhere. Right. So they take what in the book would have taken probably several hours and condense it into into a much shorter scene for the movie and I think that one was one of the changes that was that I was okay with for the most part because they did make it condensed while still getting the majority of the point across without changing it too much. <sighs> so in the end I uh, I definitely enjoyed the book as an audiobook more specifically. Um, but man, I, I feel like I'm running into a rut. If it wasn't for Jurassic Park, I feel like I'm in a rut uh, and, and uh, of movies that I'm not enjoying <laughs> as much as I could. <laughs> um, well, like I feel bad. Like this is supposed to be, you know, this is a the Crichton cast. These are these are fans. These are this is great stuff. And like, man, I, but you know, I, it's just it's well, always well, the case. Remember how this uh, show many many years ago when we first started talking about this show. It was due to a fact that I was talking, I believe you were being guest on the Socially Awkward Studios, and we were talking about uh, one Crichton movie or another, and I had brought up the fact that it seemed that Hollywood couldn't make a good Crichton movie. They would take all of these fantastic books that he had written and turn them into utter garbage on the screen. And, you know, this was one of my direct examples. You have a great book. I highly recommend reading the book. It's fantastic. It's a, it's a good, quick read. It's a nice whodunit. It's got a little bit of, um, you know, factual knowledge in there without being too, like, heavy science-handed. But just a fantastic read. Um, and then they took it and they made it into a movie. And they pooped all over it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, and and they did, and and that's what we have. I, what's interesting too about this, and there there's going to be a couple more that we're going to talk about, uh, a couple of the episodes that we'll eventually be having. But uh, this is also one of those that the book deviates from what you consider like a normal Michael Crichton, where you're talking about technology and science and mm-hmm. things like that. This is much like Great Train Robbery, where. Um, you know, Green Trade Robbery was like a historical crime drama thing, and this was a kind of current day. I mean, shoot, everything they're saying about Japan, you could think of with China, you know, as far as the economy goes and everything like that. But this was a present day, like, murder mystery was what this was, um, which is very different. And then, you know, disclosure is all, you know, a similar thing. And then, uh, on, but then we'll have, you know, Saphir and. Uh, everything else that we start getting back into the science of it. So there, there is these few handfuls, and he, what's neat is he's not near as uh, prolific as a writer as Stephen King was or is, but um, but his genres that he beats, he does an amazing job, and you can really tell that he did his research. Yeah, maybe he was off in a few places here or there, or yeah, maybe he was too honest and some people didn't like him for it, but... <laughs> A lot of the stuff is stuff that, like, I, I would read this book and think, um, yeah, that's exactly how it was. I, I, I wouldn't argue against it necessarily because it comes across as being very factual. Yeah, there's a – what I really liked about this book is that I felt he was very even-handed with it as opposed to, you know, a lot of times when he gets into the science and especially the the scare science when he's talking about how we're ruining the world in one way or another, whether we're letting computers take it over, whether we're overly genetic and engineering everything, you know, whatever the case may be, it's usually it comes off as very preachy and very one-sided sometimes. In this book, you get some of that. You get him talking about how, uh, you know, you, you get these scenes where he's talking about how everything's better in Japan. And you almost think it's like, oh, I guess, I guess he just loves Japan so much. But then he flips it around and he, he shows the other side of it. He shows the, the side that uh, makes it so that he wouldn't want to live there. You wouldn't want to necessarily live there on a full-time basis. And that while they may be good at these things, there are other things that they're not as good at, that, the, that it is better in America. And so I felt it was very even as far as that goes. So you didn't come out, come out of it feeling that you were just preached at for a book about how Japan is so much better than America or, you know, and it also or it didn't come off as being a Japan bashing book. You know, it was I felt very even handed with the facts of the matter intertwined with with some opinion, obviously. But I, I felt it was more balanced in that respect than some of his previous novels. Yeah, no, I, and I would definitely agree there. And um, and because this movie was a uh, one of the top twenty movies of nineteen ninety three, I mean, we look at it as being bad, but uh, you know, I mean, it helped that <laughs> Wesley Snipes and Sean Connery and Snipes was in his heyday in the early nineties with everything uh, that he was doing. So this was still a top twenty movie of nineteen ninety three, and so I believe that because of that is exactly why Michael Crichton was like had no problem with saying, "All right, I'll sell the rights to other books." Um, and we'll talk about it more in detail on the other episodes where he, instead of writing, he's producing and why he started producing. Um, but this is kind of the downfall for him. You know, you, when you had things like uh, Andromeda Strain, The Great Train Robbery, which he actually directed himself, mm-hmm. uh, you know, these other ones that just that really actually did a really good job. And like with Andromeda Strain, I could watch the movie or the, the book again with Great Train Robbery. I could do either one of them and enjoy it. Uh, but here, this is this is where we're we're going downward. Our 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 economy is starting to spiral down now, <laughs> as far yeah, as uh, is... the movie goes. Yeah, it 
just the from the, between the changes that were made in characters and uh, major plot points uh, to the additional scenes that were completely unnecessary just to try to to give you know to to try to snipes it up a bit um, mm-hmm. it really comes off as not a great film um, it's right. it's one of those ones that you know it, it it definitely made its money back i'm not gonna say that it didn't um, i'm looking at imdb just to see what kind of ratings it got it actually is running a 6.2 out of 10 so it's not even on the bad side of bad but it's definitely not in the good side um, i'm curious as to uh what Rotten Tomatoes says about it. Those, those <laughs> reviews tend to be a little more honest in some right. <laughs> respects. Yeah. Well, um, and while you're looking that up for Rotten Tomatoes, you know, and now we're going to go back to back because this uh, Jurassic Park was June 93, and then this was uh, July of 93, and next uh, you have in 1994 was Disclosure, and then you have Congo in 95. Um, and then he did Twister in 96, which wasn't based off of a book or anything, but he wrote the screenplay for it. And then you have Sphere in 98, and then you have 13th Warrior in 99. So, I mean, we have the 90s was just full of Michael Crichton movies, and unfortunately, it they just were not stellar like they should have been. Right. Or they could they, have They been. didn't live up to their source material, I feel. Because right. I, I remember reading all of those books and thinking, this is fantastic, and then watching the movie and it's like oh what happened <laughs> yeah because uh timeline sphere were two of the books i read um very shortly after watching jurassic park and realizing that that was based off of a book um and what you know obviously listen to those episodes when we talk about them in detail but it just wasn't the same and then it's funny because i think i went from those and i went straight to andromeda strain and i started reading his older stuff mm-hmm. and even then i mean you know, there was a 30-year difference between when I read it and when Andromeda Strain came out, and the book was amazing. Yeah. Uh, they they really do hold up. Even even the older ones where you look at it and be like, okay, well, some of the science has, has changed since then. We know some more things, but yet it still holds up. And that's the thing yeah. about when you're dealing with uh, real science and not pure science fiction. When you're dealing with, you know, science fiction that's based on real science, it doesn't tend to get as out of date as quickly because the the real science is there to back it up. And even as we discover more, the base is still there. So, uh, looking at Rotten Tomatoes, it is it is running a thirty five percent on the tomato meter. <laughs> okay, all right, <laughs> with an all audience right, score so of forty percent. So, um, yeah, definitely. Uh, Definitely running in the lower half. Not not the worst movie anybody's ever seen by far, but definitely not the best either. Well, that's good. So it wasn't just me then. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> now, and it's one of those things that, uh, yeah, I was looking at the, sometimes you'll see when you look at the box office results, you know, they'll show like the, the weekends and opening weekend it made $15 million. Uh, mm-hmm. And then from there, looks like it went, it dropped significantly. Um, actually, you know, it stayed pretty strong through the first three weeks, it looks like, before dropping sharply off. Okay. So I guess it wasn't as bad because normally with, with a really bad movie, what you see is even if it has a good opening weekend, you'll see that second weekend further just <laughs> when Plummet. people yeah. figure out. Like everybody went inside and said, don't go watch that movie. And so nobody goes and sees it the second weekend. You definitely don't get any repeat views. Um, mm-hmm. you know, with a good movie, you'll see a strong opening weekend, and then you know, three, four weeks later, people are still going to go see it. Um, Rising Sun, you know, it had 15 million open week, opening weekend, second weekend was nine, then it went to six, four, two as it went along, and 
spent a couple of weekends right around three million and before dropping off. Uh, so it didn't do poorly. You know, it made its money and doubled its money in the U.S. basically and made some money overseas as well. So yeah, and he wasn't hurting with you know Jurassic Park being the number one movie of nineteen ninety three. Period. Right. So you know that helps, <laughs> but. Um, but yeah, so it's, um, you'll have to let us know if you think otherwise and, um, really pay attention to us on, uh, Twitter if you can, because we're doing different polls. We had a poll on your favorite novels and everything. And what I'm going to do is, in, um, we're going to integrate that into the website too, because as we're talking about these novels, we kind of want you to vote on what your favorite novel slash book was. Um, it'd be really fun at the end of this whole thing to just have like a sweet 16 thing and Hey, here's the number one seed, um, <laughs> as we're doing all this voting. So but you can find us everywhere. Uh, Crichtoncast is the easy thing to search for. But Facebook.com, it's Crichtoncast. Twitter, we're at Crichtoncast. It's just Crichtoncast.com is the website where you can leave your uh, leave us a message if you want. The email is uh, info at Crichtoncast.com, right, Eric? Yep, indeed. Okay, good. <laughs> info at Crichtoncast.com, yep. Okay, and then also you can just reach us, uh, call and leave us a voicemail. We will play it uh, on the air. 802-JURASSIC um, is the phone number there, and that's all under our contact page on com. We really appreciate you guys listening to us, especially appreciate you guys interacting with us um, on Twitter. Uh, there's been some great fans out there uh, that we've gone back and forth with, so we love to hear from you. Please keep it coming. Absolutely, yeah. We love interacting with our fans, and uh, hey, want to hear if there's anything that uh, you really liked about the movie Rising Sun that uh, you think we missed, or if there's anything you really hated about it that we didn't talk about, we'd love to hear that. Same goes for the novel. If there's something you really liked about it that you think we didn't touch on, or that you really didn't like about it that we didn't touch on, uh, we'd love to hear about it, because uh, <clears throat> we're not uh, you know, number one experts in the world on this by any stretch of the imagination. We just want to we just want to talk about this stuff and hopefully interact with you guys who want to talk about it too. And if my Japanese was that horrific in the beginning of this episode, <laughs> let me know. I'll continue practicing for everybody. Hey, everybody. Eric here to tell you about a special promotion my charity, Comicare, is running. We are up for a challenge, and we need your support. At Comicare, we spend all year traveling to hospitals and collecting smiles from children and their families and leave comic books behind to keep the smiles going. Well, now we want to see your smiles, and we want to post them on our pages, too. This July 20th through 23rd, we will bring Arizona Tony Stark to the San Diego International Comic Con and take on one of our biggest challenges yet. We will have four days to collect as many pictures as we can of smiling supporters with Tony. How many can we collect? A hundred? Three hundred? Five hundred? We'll run for the 1,000 mark, but you never know. Will you pledge a couple of pennies for each photo we collect? Just think, if you pledge just two cents per picture and we collect a hundred photos, your donation will be two dollars. If we collect a thousand, twenty dollars. Either way, a small price to pay to be part of our continuing mission. We appreciate all your support in the past and we know you will enjoy being a part of this adventure. So please visit comicare.org slash one thousand smiles. That's C O M I C A R E dot org slash one zero 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 smiles. Visit our page, click that pledge button, and throw us a couple of cents per smile. 